Hi, everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Changing the Course. I'm Atara, founder of the Curly Girl Movement, author of the Curly Girly book series, and owner of curlygirly.com. And my podcast mission is to bring interesting, newsworthy, and current topics to the forefront with dynamic guests who help us change the way we see things and open our world to new ideas. Today, I am truly honored to be speaking with Olivia Troy. Many of you will recognize her name as Olivia worked as the Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence, serving as a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force until August of this year when she resigned. Olivia has real, honest, and very timely information detailing the mismanagement of the coronavirus by the White House and her role during this critical time period. This is an important episode for anyone who really wants to understand the White House response to the pandemic and the truth behind the scenes. Olivia was there in the trenches and she left when she could no longer stand by and do her job as intended. Welcome Olivia to my show. I am so happy to have you on. How are you? Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hanging in there. I can imagine this is not an easy time for you because let me start by saying that I, I think you are really very, very brave. Like what you, this is not an easy undertaking that you have chosen, like essentially taking on the White House and subjecting yourself to ridicule and disassociation that comes along with going against this administration. And I want to thank you for your cancer in advance and your honesty, which is really important especially as we approach election day, because I think what you and others like you have to say is really gonna be helpful in the American people making informed and intelligent decisions. So with that said, let's get started. Let's just a bit of background. You worked in counterterrorism at the White House for for a long time, right? For how long was that and when did that begin? So yes, I was a Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor for over two years. I was there 26 months uh, in my assignment in the Vice President's office. And what was your role at that time? Well, so the Vice President's team operates a little differently than what most people are familiar with, which is the National Security Council construct. Uh, the National Security Council is a lot bigger. They have different offices covering different topics. On the Vice President's team, you do cover all of the topics and regions. It's a small group of us. We're a much smaller team. I mean, I think there's a most of a, uh, at, a, at the top of it, it was maybe 10 of us. And we're divided either by regions or portfolios or functionality. And I was the more functional person on the team, which meant my responsibility, I was really tracking emerging threats or major breaking events. So I would track overseas bombings, terrorism attacks. I tracked all of the mass shootings that happened domestically in our country, which unfortunately I have to say was way too many during my tenure uh, in the White House. I definitely, those were some of the hardest ones uh, to work on because it was hard to, to see, you know, the hurt that that causes and people suffering with that. And I worked on natural disasters as well. I also uh, tracked and advised on the wildfires and the flooding and, and hurricanes and all of that. So uh, as, as some of the people in the White House called me, I was a bad news bear. So I did not <laughs> ever deliver good news when I was coming to brief on it, unfortunately. It wasn't like, oh, you know, we have a tax reform or anything like that. That wasn't my area at all. It was, it was really more 
um, anything bad that was going on in the world. And so I was the person on call 24 hours a day. So then from um, this counterterrorism, you then get um, appointed to work on the coronavirus task force. Is that how it went? And, and, who, and how did that come about exactly? I did. Well, so uh, as a homeland person, I track any evolving or emerging threats that could potentially come our way. Okay. And so it's my job to kind of stay one step ahead, perhaps. Um, it, 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 like, I think that's probably the best way to describe it. So okay. I started tracking uh, the pandemic uh, in early January. We knew that something was happening in Wuhan overseas. And although I coordinated with my colleague who covered the China portfolio, obviously, because that was his region at the time, mm -hmm. I was looking at it from the lens of, I'm the person that looks at it and says, could that come here? When might it come here? And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for Americans? And that is really how I viewed every single day. It was just sort of, how am I going to protect Americans from the next big thing or whatever was happening then? And But this uh, is January 2020. So at that point, you just had, did you have much more information than the general public at that time period? Uh, so we did not... So we were tracking what was going on on the ground there fairly closely, but we obviously didn't have access. And there were a lot of interagency government meetings taking place, trying to figure out what was happening uh, in, in Wuhan and trying to really understand uh, the virus. And so I was on the task force very early on in January before the vice president was actually appointed to lead it. Okay. And I was attending the meetings because it was my job to make sure that I was tracking it and keeping him updated and General Kellogg, who was the head of the national security team at the time, and well, he still is, and, and the chief of staff. And so my job was just sort of to kind of remain abreast of what was happening, any new development meant. So I would sit in every task force meeting from day one, because this was something that I needed to really understand and sort of watch the trajectory of what that would mean later down the road. And so when did it become clear to you that this was bigger than the administration was letting everybody know about we're letting them i would say probably we knew that something uh bad we knew that it was bad in wuhan we knew that probably by mid-january and i will oh, say wow. that that's, so very, say that's that, pretty early right to know that because i remember january you know i remember martin luther king weekend skiing vacation like there was just no thought in any of our lives that this was a problem like it was some weird thing we may have heard about but probably not right and i think you know I, to be fair i think that that's normal for americans right i mean it's normal if you're not constantly tracking threats like i am right, right. um to kind of yeah to put it in context i i think it's important to really take a step back and say i mean it, it because it was overseas still right as right. far as we knew the virus was in China and we were watching it and trying to figure out how, why it was spreading so fast, how it was spreading. Okay. And these were a lot of unknowns. I, there were a lot of unknowns at the very beginning on the rate of spread and how it spread. And does it live on surfaces? Right. How long does it live on surfaces? Right. So these are all the questions that are being sort of looked at by the doctors and the experts and the CDC and trying to really understand what's really happening here and where did it stem from? Where did it come from? Can we find the origin? And so these are all the things that we're wrestling with. Now, and I would say by probably late January, to be honest, I 
you know, as a person who <laughs> I sometimes would joke, I say like carry the one is what I like to say. I'm like, you know, a long math person where I'm like, well, hold on, let me, uh, let me look at this from, from sort of the overall lens. Like if it's spreading that quickly there, right. and there are people traveling to the right. United States right, every day from China and this region, right? Uh-huh. How is it not here? Right. How is that There's even possible? There's just no right. way. That's basically impossible. So, and I think by late January, we had a pretty good perspective on the fact that it was here. We just didn't know maybe perhaps the extent where we struggled with that. And I think that's why you see the formal formation of the task force, because it is a group of people who have been talking about this. We've been meeting about it. And the White House says, well, we got to we got to show like we're actually taking this very this measure is that we're, you know, we're taking this as a very important development and situation. Unfortunately, that sort of changes in the narrative along the way, right? Because then you see the, the White House and the administration, the president start to play it down. Right. And for many reasons, I mean, they were concerned about the stock market, they're concerned about the economy. There's just an overlying layer of, of politics that happens along the way. Right. But, but it sounds like initially they wanted to kind of try to get it out there, maybe get ahead of it, thinking they could disseminate the information and that would actually make them look good because they can get control of it. Is that, is that somewhat correct? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I think, I, and I want to make sure, you know, the people on the task force, like a lot of the doctors and, and some of the cabinet members, I mean, we were working day and night. Right. I, 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 have, to, I have to say that it wasn't like we were just kind of sitting back watching this thing take over evolve. There were a lot of hard hours put in where we were right. working 12 to 16 hour days every day and, and, and weekends. And I, I would say it's not for lack of trying because there was certainly a coalition of the willing knowing that we had, the time was of the essence, mm -hmm. the clock was ticking, and we needed to move fast to protect you know, people, uh, Americans in our country. And, but it was a very hard challenge for us to face when we realized that the dynamic at the very top in the Oval Office was going to continuously undermine our ability to do this and do it well. Now, can you pinpoint a period of time or even like a scenario, a discussion that made you realize that they were going to try to hold back information? I definitely saw the narrative of, you know, this is of low risk. You know, the, the risk to Americans is low, I think is a talking point. You probably saw at the very beginning repeatedly over and over and over if that was said. Right. Uh, but it was, you know, a cautious sort of, sort of warning that, you know, we needed to take precautions. But I think what you see is you see the CDC, who is normally actually, they normally brief. They do regular briefings during pandemics or other, you know, outbreaks. They're the ones that get out in front and share and inform the public. And, and you see uh, Nancy, I remember back in February, she gives what she goes out and does her usual CDC briefing. But she paints a very, a much starker picture than what you're hearing from the podium per se at the White House. And that is when you see the task force evolve and the vice president gets put 
and target it. And now do you remember um, or recall any conversations in which you were like specifically told, okay, Olivia, we know X, Y, and Z is happening, but we need to downplay this. How did that actually manifest itself in a real, in a real meaningful, clear way for you that, that you had to put a lid on things? Well, it, you know, it was ongoing and it happened repeatedly. There would be discussions in the task force where we would be talking about PP, per, uh, for example, or we would be talking about, uh, I mean, early on, I will say this, we did have significant discussions about, about masks and we were very concerned about N95 uh, mask availability for our medical workers, right? I mean, that was priority number one. And we knew that we did not have enough stock for them. Right. We were watching. I remember Dr. Fauci talking about uh, New York City, right? Your home. Um, oh, God, yes, I remember. It was horrible. Yeah. Because I had a lot of friends who were physicians, right? Who were saying what was going on in the hospital, they felt like they were in a third world country. They were afraid people were stealing PPE and they were afraid every day that they were wearing masks that they were supposed to dispose of for three, four days in a row. So I, I actually remember that very well. Yes, and I remember Dr. Fauci, who is actually from, I believe he's from Brooklyn, uh, I think. He's from New York, he's okay. a New Yorker. Uh -huh. And I remember him sitting in a meeting saying, I'm talking to the doctors in the emergency rooms, talking to my friends, my colleagues, and they're telling me that it's really bad. And they're telling me that they're not getting the PP. So where is it going? I thought we sent masks and gowns like, and it was a discussion sort of in the task force. And I, I, I give you that situation because that paints the picture of the everyday reality that we face. So we would have these discussions, but then we would go out and say, everything's fine. Or the president would say, this pandemic's going away. It's not, you know, the cases are going to go away. We only have 15 cases. We're going to be down to zero next week. Or it was, you know, the narrative of, yeah, or the narrative for, you know, for New York, it was blaming Cuomo, right? It was all Cuomo's fault. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and I, although I won't get involved in the Trump Cuomo politics world, because it was clear to me that something was there. Right. Um, but, but I will say that that actually plays out across the U.S., which is very unfortunate, because it becomes, we don't want to own this problem. We're going to let the states own it. Yes. And I think that that is a massive failure on behalf of the U.S. government because we exist to support the states and have their backs when major crises like this happen. Right. Right. That is the point of the federal government. When a state can't handle it on its own, that's why they have us. They have mm -hmm. FEMA. They have other government agencies there who are there to support at moments like this or help the governors navigate these things. And I think that that is fundamentally one of the major failures of this pandemic response is, is that interaction and the politicizing every single step of the way to include, as you saw the mask, right? The right. mask didn't have to be a political tool. Right. It, it, it never should have been. There's no reason right. for something such as basic as a mask to, to end up being an issue that still divides us today, right? You yeah. see people yelling at each other in stores. Right. They're watching people on airplanes yell at each other. I mean, I think that says a lot about where we are today and, and how we got here. And it's very, it's very disconcerting and unfortunate. It's, it's very sad. Yeah, because, you know, I was reading that really we are, there is no other country in Europe anywhere that has turned the masks into a, 
you know, a red and blue issue. It's not, and it shouldn't be. And it really is just a sign of respect. And, you know, sometimes you'll be among people, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, and they're not wearing a mask and they'll say to you, oh, don't worry, I have antibodies, <laughs> you know, but you don't wear a sign on your forehead or on your t-shirt that says, I have antibodies. So rather than go around telling that to everyone, just be respectful, put it on. We don't know what the antibodies actually mean, how long they last. Let's just all get onboarded with this. And I think everything, um, like Dr. Fauci said, like you can stop a significant percentage of this from spreading by such a simple act. And, you know, I have school age children. Everyone was saying, how are they going to be in school with masks? They can't do that all day. But you know what? They can and they do. And they're thrilled to be in school and they're protected. So we, we really just have to onboard. It's not too late, right? Every day is crucial. Right. And honestly, if we had, if we would have been able to, <laughs> if everyone would have united and worn a mask, we wouldn't be at over what 50,000 cases daily now right. going into the winter when we knew that this would be uh, bad. I mean, we were briefed on this in the spring. The doctors were fully on 100% consensus that if we didn't take everything we could to slow the spread in the spring and in the summer, that we would face a very stark and dark and grave winter. And we are we are there. We are not down to the 10,000 or lower cases, which I think they recommended. Right. We are, we are far from that. Right. And, and I will say, you know, I hear sometimes the arguments and I get, you know, the wonderful vitriol that I get sometimes in direct messages from people mm -hmm. and they'll say, <laughs> and they'll say, you know, a mask is worthless. And I was like, you know, it's not 100% fall proof, but right. it is certainly going to pr help protect you and the people around you. And really, and if you don't want to want to protect yourself, at least have the respect for the people around you and the community around you. Right. Right, and, because we and don't know. It's such a hard thing to do. That's also that should be in the calculus. Like, let's assume for argument's sake, everybody who doesn't want to wear a mask is right. And then a year from now, we find out they really were not pointless, which obviously we're not going to find that out. But let's just pretend for a second. How, what did it cost you to put on a mask? You were uncomfortable for like five minutes until you got used to it. <laughs> you know, it, it just doesn't make sense. So I think that's really where people need to be onboarded is that the potential for saving lives and if that's all it is is potential is so well worth it the downside just doesn't outweigh that right and the challenge here domestically honestly is the fact that americans we're, we're so used to our freedoms yes we are a very free country and we are so lucky and blessed that that's the case because we don't like to be shut down right the shutdown right that we did early on, that was unheard of. That is not how we Americans sort of behave. Like you're gonna tell us to stay inside, are you kidding me? That's not, right. that's not even, I can't even like imagine that. That's not who America is, but, and so, and the mask wearing, that's not, that's not something that our culture is very familiar with. Whereas you, you can see overseas in other countries who, adhere to more strict guidelines. They wore the mask, they're more familiar with that. It's more common there in countries like in Asia and shutdowns with cities where people respected a little more. They were able to slow the spread. And the whole point of that was to get ahead right. of the virus, right? To create, right. to buy time because right. the virus is coming here no matter what and it's spreading. It's just right. a question of buying, buying time until we have the therapeutics and until we have a vaccine that's safe and effective and we have different options. And in the spring, I mean, we were in a pretty bad place. We didn't have PPE. 
we don't make masks here. We didn't have therapeutics that were effective, no matter how much the president will tell you that bleach and hydroxychloroquine actually work. Um, you know, I mean, so all of these things, we need a time. That's, and we, our stockpile, we'd never really focused on that. That's not, you know, and that's not even just this administration. That is, that is legacy from previous administrations throughout time. It just wasn't something that we really, I think we've learned a hard lesson firsthand this time that we do need to kind of invest in the stockpile and make sure to keep tabs on it, right? Right, you need to be prepared. So I know that you, um, I've heard you speaking on, on other outlets and you recount really a very troubling anecdote about the president in which he, he tells task force members something like, you know, maybe this COVID thing is a good thing. You know, I don't like shaking hands with people. Anyway, do you remember that incident and what that felt like to hear that? Yeah, I, you know, so the president is a germaphobe. That is not a secret. Everybody, everybody around him is aware of this. If you, even pre-COVID, if you sneezed or coughed in a meeting, uh, he would sometimes politely ask you to leave. So yeah. this is a thing for him. And, and you know, every, you know, everybody has their own right. threshold for it that. Idiosyncrasies, right? right. <laughs> yeah, and that's right. it. And, but I remember that we were early on in a very uh, early task force meeting. And I mean, I want to say this is probably January, early February timeframe. And I remember him coming in and he sits down and we're trying to get through the agenda that we're going to go through. And, and I was, and he says, you know, so it spreads very easily. I mean, he's asking the right questions and he's like, well, and I cannot believe this because I sat there and I was like, did he just say that? <laughs> and he said, well, COVID is a good thing, right? I don't have to shake hands with people. I hate shaking hands with people. It's disgusting. I had to shake hands when I was a businessman up in New York. I hated it then. And, you know, now I'm a politician. And when you're a politician, you have to shake a lot of hands and I have to shake hands with these disgusting people. He's like, so maybe it's not so bad. Maybe we'll bow at each other or something like that, right? I mean, he went on on a little, on the, you know, rants, and his rants usually last a good, a good chunk of time. So, and I just remember, I kind of remember, I remember I'm sitting to the right of him. I remember exactly where I was sitting in the room. And I remember looking around the room, watching people's reactions. And I remember my, I remember actually, I know that my face reacted. And right. Because I kept thinking, uh, even if you're slightly, I don't know if this is supposed to be a joke or not. No one seems to be really laughing. Right. You're not chuckling either. Right. But I can't believe that you're saying this out loud at a moment when we're in the middle of a crisis. Right. And that would be the last thing that would cross my head that would come out of my mouth. Even if you're thinking about it, I just don't know that that, that it's a very presidential moment to no. come out and say, maybe it's a good thing when you know, and are being told that, a significant amount of the population is going to suffer. A lot of them are already fighting for their lives in emergency rooms across America, especially in the hot spots like in New York and Washington State and right. California and certain spots. And this is and this is where your mind is. Right. Right. It's not on let's crank through the agenda. What are we doing to evacuate people right. from Wuhan? What are we doing to what about what about the cruise ships? They're right. petri dishes. Right. They're floating petri dishes, right? right. Let's think about There's that. So many issues. What are we right? Right. Right. And instead, it's it's making comments like that, with, which is just par for the course with with who Donald Trump is, unfortunately. I mean, this is one example of many where, he, you know, I, I, I tell people this. I mean, I guess the good thing about the president is he is who he is and he doesn't hide it. Who right. you see in public and the things, the comments that he says, 
is how he behaves behind closed doors. Right. That is it, a hundred percent. That's his thing. That's how he thinks and his uh, thoughts right. are followed by his actions. So um, I guess my question then to you is, so you're, you're hearing all this, you know, you've gone into politics, obviously your heart's in the right place. You want to do the right thing. You want to serve the country. How do you go home at night and reconcile these conversations that you're hearing and then your role at the White House with who you are as like this good person who really wants to serve the country best? So it's hard. Right. Every night and every day, I think there were definitely a group of us that would, <laughs> that we struggled. It was a moral struggle to be in this situation. Um, but I will say that for me personally, I felt that I was, you know, my, I was critical in my role at the task force, especially when the vice president took the lead of it, because I was the lead coordinator for things. I was mm -hmm. uh, the right-hand person for most of the experts on the task force and sort of making sure that the interagency was moving on things and policies that needed to get done or the agenda was focusing on the critical items at hand that we needed to discuss the next day, et cetera. So I think what I did was as hard as the dynamics were internally in the White House, I did my best to go out of my way to help the public health community and uh, in navigating this incredibly challenging environment. Okay. And, you know, at times when you're being told to change the language on CDC guidelines, specifically on schools or, you know, cruise ships or transportation, mm -hmm. face coverings for transportation, right, which you saw actually that the White House continues to override and overrule, even right. though I can tell you that the U.S. government is in full agreement that they should be mandatory because we are protecting the transportation and the critical infrastructure people. We're protecting the bus sure. drivers. Protecting the trans and... So I, what I, I basically hung in there because what I was working on mattered so much. And I thought, if not me, then who? Right. Right. And, and I think that every doctor, you know, I know Dr. Brooks has gotten a lot of criticism. I have seen her uh, behind the scenes and I have seen her struggle like all of us on trying to do the right thing. And you know, and I have, I've said this publicly, I've said, you know, you can't not be complicit to a certain extent and be part of this apparatus. Right. Right. I, and I own that. And that is something that I will carry for the rest of my life on my conscience. That's no doubt unwavering. That's there. Right. And, but all you can do is try to steer things in the best way possible when you can. And I watched, you know, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. Dr. Hanna, who I have to tell you, I have incredible, um, I have incredible respect for. He's the head of the FDA. Mm -hmm. And I know that man would, he will quit before he allows a vaccine to come out that could be dangerous. Oh, that's good to know. Oh, and, but I have watched these people bullied over wow. and over. And, and it's, it's painful. No, it <laughs> and really it does wear away. It's demoralizing. People find themselves in this situation over and over. And more often than not, we take it. 
right? We take it for various reasons. And, and some of the time it's because we think like, okay, it's a short period of time. I'll take it. And, and then I'll be able to move from there. And sometimes we feel powerless to do anything else. And in your case, maybe it was a combination of various things. But I think that what's empowering now is, Olivia, that you're coming out and you're talking about it. Because I think people don't talk about what it feels like every day to be so put down and so demoralized and so bullied. And there really is no other word for it, right? No, I mean, I can tell you that the intimidation factor is real. And the culture of fear, especially in the White House, is very real. And if you, you know, if you speak out, and if you try to tell the truth, like many of the doctors have when they do their briefings, they pay for it right. later, or the president will try to discredit them or go public or tweet about them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you saw, and you never know, you never know when the bus is coming at you, by the way. It right. happens so unexpectedly, but, it, but it's not a matter of if. You know it's a matter of when. Right. Because that's, it, that's who this environment is. And I think you're right. I think people face this in other aspects of life and daily. And that intimidation factor is, is very real and pervasive. And when you have an environment like that, it makes it very hard to succeed. Yeah. and be productive. And unfortunately, this was the environment during one of the biggest pandemics of our generation. Yeah. And it still is. What is Mike's, Mike Pence's role in all of this? Like, you reported directly to him? I did. I reported to General Kellogg, and then I, and so we're a very flat sort of organization. And so I briefed the vice president. I worked for him, especially once he took over the task force every single day. I worked very closely with him and the chief of staff and others. And you know, he, he is in a very, <laughs> he was no different than the rest of us is what I will say. He is in a very challenging situation when his, when, you know, his boss is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And I think politically, this is the road that he chose for better or worse. Right. right. I mean, he, right. but on the other hand, I guess, I mean, I, don't, I can't speak for him, but I think, I guess if that was when he saw the moment to serve as the vice president and that was the opportunity, unfortunately, this was it, right? I certainly, I will tell you personally, I, even though I was a career intel officer in the White House assigned there, there were times when I would sit in meetings and walk out, for example, you know, on a number of issues like immigration and just be very upset Right. and hurt by some of the comments that were said. And I remember thinking, like, out of all the White Houses, man, I got this one. Right. <laughs> right. Like, right. And, right. And I say that because I have a lot of colleagues who are incredible, and they have had the opportunity to serve in the National Security Council under other administrations. And they have personally told me that they have no idea how, how I hung on for that long because mm -hmm. they did not have the same environment that I did, right? They, did, right. they it was very different. Every White House is political, obviously. There's that dynamic. It's always a palace intrigue, and there's power plays and everything. But this was on a whole new level because, at the end of the day, these people are are fundamentally evil. There's just no other way for me to capture a lot of the dynamics and how these people behave. And so, for the vice president, I think. You know, I do know that he is a very much a man of faith. I know that Mrs. Pence is as well. They practice that faith. And I know that I saw him at times 
you know, I saw him try to do the right thing. But when you have an overshadowing dynamic coming out of the oval, you're never going to succeed. But, you know, there is also something, I'm just throwing this out there, when you're complicit over and over and over again. Um, so your role really, you know, you have a choice. There was a lot of complicity that makes his role, you know, very um, important here. So I'm just uh, throwing that out there. But your, it sounds like your interactions with Mike Pence were, were mostly overall positive, would you say? Yeah, you know, I, he was a good boss. Okay. Right. I didn't, uh, you know, I worked with him very closely. He was a good boss. He was always very kind uh, to me and my family uh, whenever we did interact or in other social settings at times when we were invited uh, to celebrations or things like that. Uh, and I, but I do, I do think that you are correct. I do think that at some point, especially when it's American lives, it's important to take a stand. Right. So let's talk about you for a second because you really took a stand and are taking a stand now. So walk me forward to the moment where you said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Well, so I think this had been building for a while, but I had the importance of the work was really what kept driving me forward. Right. And, and my sense of commitment, that's just who I am. I am all in whenever I do a job, I do it to the best of my ability unwaveringly. And Certainly it took it. I mean, I'll say it took a toll on my family. I had been working uh, long hours for, for several years, even including at DHS. And in this situation, as the election got closer, the political environment got worse and harder. And it became more about saying anything that they could in favor of the election in favor, you know, let's open up the states, open up the economy. Uh, they ran on an economic and jobs platform, right? And they prided themselves on how well that was going. And in some ways, you know, to their credit, yes, I will say they did, you know, to a certain extent, a good job on it. But this is about the American people and the protection of and the safety of Americans for me, right? And I, what I started to see was there was no there was there wasn't going to be a way for me to continue to try to push back or overcome because at this point as the election got closer it got even harder and I was seeing even more egregious things and I felt that I was I was going to be caught in this dynamic where I just at some point morally just did not feel comfortable at all and I felt that I wasn't going to be able to serve the vice president well in the role, given that dynamic of people on immediate staff or those around him, because there were just a lot of, of things happening behind the scenes. And Lafayette Square, that incident was a low point for me because I think the combination of the hypocrisy that I was seeing when people were dying, being affected by the virus, and the vitriol and the hate and the rhetoric being infused by the president directly and in, in a moment where people were hurting across our country, not only with COVID, right, but, but we clearly were at a critical moment when it comes to race relations and we were, we were watching people's voices want to be heard and we were watching this happen across the country. And to, to violently clear out the protesters at the White House and 
parade around for a photo op in front of a church and hold a Bible that way was it. I could not, I never came back from that. I remember sitting in the White House that day and feeling so just angry and sad and every emotion that you could possibly imagine combined into one thinking. So now I'm worried about COVID. I'm worried about our law enforcement who are being used basically right. as political yeah. tools because they are. Right. And I'm pro-law enforcement, right? I'm a homeland security person. Right. I support right. security. That's your, yes. <laughs> and, and I also am hearing, I am a lover, I'm a patriot. I am a lover of the American people. And to watch this and then watch, you know, <laughs> having been working for an evangelical to watch the president go out there and hold the Bible and parade it around and, and watch the military out there with them and the attorney general who quite frankly, I don't think deserves to be representative of the rule of law because he's consistently undermined it. Yes. Wow. was just a comp. It was just too much. And I hung in there for another month, but I, that was, that was it. I that thought, was the beginning of the I end for you. That was like you, you began to plot your exit strategy at that point. Right, because I was just, you know, I still did my work. I was working and I was coordinating. And I felt it was very hard to leave. It was hard to leave the task force members primarily because I felt like I was letting them down and I didn't know who they were going to have right. to turn to. Um, but on the other hand, I thought to myself, I can't sit here anymore uh, surrounded Right. By a lot of these people who think that this is okay. Now, do you remember having discussions with some of your colleagues about how you felt and how this was not okay? Yes. And what was the consensus generally? You know, it was a mix. I think a lot of people, I was not alone in my sentiment. There were a lot of behind closed door conversations where people felt very similarly. Uh, I will say we're junior staff, uh, you know, we're traveling. They were, they were, you know, they were, going on to the rallies and stuff because they were dead set on getting back on the campaign trail. They were worried for the safety of their health and their families because they were going to be exposed. Right. And they were concerned. A lot of these people, you know, a lot of them are, have, you know, Christian values watching that event at Lafayette Square did not settle well with a lot of these people. Right. And it was just, it was hard. And I think, that is ultimately why I walk away from it. And not only do I walk away from the White House, I walk, I walk away from my career at DHS. Right. I completely separate from the U.S. government and decide that I just need, I need a break and I need to remove myself from this entire thing and really take a step back. And I did that. And I, I didn't come forward for a little while. It was, this wasn't, you know, I didn't have a long-term plan on this. I wasn't right. sitting there in the White House planning like, Okay, what I'm going to do. <laughs> right. right. Tomorrow. No. I can't wait I to go on CNN point. with Anderson Cooper tomorrow. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure you've seen me on media. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the most polished person because I've never done media in my entire life. No, you're yeah. terrific. It's just that you're more probably by nature, more of an introverted person. So this isn't very easy for you to do, which I think makes it so much more powerful. You know, like when I watch you and I see your face, I see the earnestness and I see the honesty. And I think that's really a great lesson for people to learn and women in particular is this isn't easy for you this is really really hard but at some point it's good to take a stand now did you when you took this stand 
I'm just curious, like the emotions, was it, did you feel sort of relieved right away or were you second guessing yourself? Was it a bit of both? I think it was a bit of both. I mean, first I felt fear. Right. I can't tell you how scared. Of repercussions? Uh, what were you afraid of? Yes. I think it's just, it's mostly fear of the unknown and, and the vindictiveness of, I mean, I've seen how they react when people speak out, right? And they do, they go out of their way to discredit you. Yes. Yeah. And when you've worked, you know, I'm 20 years into my career, when you have worked so hard, especially as a female in my field, right? It, you could potentially be destroying this in one, one moment. Right. And I, yeah. And it, and it's gone. And I didn't know, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I recorded the video ad because I felt strongly about it. I felt that people really needed to know what was happening, uh, what I could tell them firsthand. And then, you know, they could make their own decision on whether, on how they would vote. Right. I can't, right. That's a personal decision, but I felt that I needed to come forward because now is a moment that mattered. Right. And after, you know, months from now, yeah, it, it'll be an interesting story to tell. Right. right. There'll be so many stories told about this administration. Right. But when it matters is, is now because I felt four more years of continuing to watch the president and the way he was behaving, especially I can't even tell you how horrified after he got COVID and the way he behaved and, oh, and what he did. Yeah. It was just angry. It was it was like, this is not okay. And we've got to stop this. We've got to do everything we can to get back to some sense of normalcy, if that makes sense. And I, and that is really quite frankly, why I decided to come forward at whatever cost. And I, you know, I was scared and, you know, for the days that went on afterwards and still today, there's a lot of unknowns. I I know that this will have long-term repercussions on my career, right? I will, perhaps be looked at like, you know, someone that can't be trusted. Well, I've never, I've, you know, been keeping what I would say state secrets for years, right? right. Clearly I've never betrayed anyone's confidence or right. any of my previous bosses. And for me to make this decision at this moment was because I felt like we were in a constitutional crisis and I needed, you know, to speak out. And I, I think that's actually part of being a national security professional. I think- Great. This is part of the role is how I see it. If you think, if you, if, if there's something very wrong about this situation that is harming our country, which I truly believe it is, then I felt like it was my duty to come forward. No, I, I think, I think it's really, it's amazing that you were able to do it. And I think that your earnestness and your honesty really do come across um, and, and I think that, you know, there are pivotal moments in your life. So when you look back at this time period, this is going to be one of those pivotal moments where, right, you could have stayed, you could have gone along with it as you had been for months, or you could have said enough. And I think that you will, you will ultimately um, be on a better course for having said enough. So I, I really do applaud you. Um, I've heard you describe yourself as a John McCain Republican. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what that means, because I think, you know, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, everybody, most people have a soft spot for John McCain, right? He was a really good guy. So what does that mean to you? Well, I think it's just, I think the Republican Party is such a different party right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that it has unfortunately been hijacked by Trumpism, by Trump Republicans. And I wasn't raised that way. I have 
you know, when I say John McCain, I look at a man who extended the arm to the other side, right? Yeah. And he was willing to work across both sides and across the aisle. And I think that that is something that we are lacking now. These days, we are so divided right. as a country that it's, it's, it's hurtful to me to sort of watch this because that is not the Republican Party and the values that I grew up adhering to or watching, right? I, and that you dedicated your careers to, right? This is right. So how does like moderates like you, we, like they need to come together and find common ground um, where honorable disagreements on policy can really come together to help this country. How, how do you envision that happening? You know, I think it's going to take a lot of work. And I think the Republicans have a lot of work to do because there is certainly a whole group of people out there who do not subscribe to what is happening to right now. Right. We are not part of this movement of, of extremism that is sort of happening that you're seeing and the rhetoric that this sort of carries with it. And I think organizations such as Repair, which I, Miles Taylor and other people have co-founded, which are like the Republican Political Alliance for Integrity and Reform. Organizations like that matter right now because I think you're going to see a shift. And I think, I think there are a lot of unknowns. I think, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if, you know, we'll ever get the party back to some sense of normalcy, so to speak, and core values again, where we're working side by side with the Democrats for the betterment of the country. Right. And I don't know, and, and I don't know that any of us are sure of what will happen. And I think organizations like that and people who are willing to do the work and sort of say, what does this mean for us? Where are we going? And I will say this, if it remains the party of Trump, then there's certainly not a home for it, for me there in it, because I won't, I will not go along with this. And I will be sort of trying to figure out where I, where I really fit in. And I'll be, you know, independent or moderate or figuring that out, because I can certainly say I've got plenty of friends who are Democrats who I adore and, and have supported me even during my tenure at the White House because they believed my values and they knew that I would, you know, always try to do the best or the right thing. And I, I don't like this environment right. where everyone's yelling at each other and people are unfriending each other right. based on politics. I think it's a horrible president and I think um, precedent for our country. And I think, I think it's very unfortunate because I think we're so much better when we're working together. I mean, you know, it's, it's in the way when I, when I hear you speaking, I think, you know, it's kind of simple, right? Like we always tell our children, be kind to one another, don't bully to one another, disagree with one another respectfully, right? Like these are simple tenets that young children are brought up by parents to believe and to do, and you hope that those are the people they become. But yet we have this White House where like, you use the word bullying and it's, that's normal there, right? And that's not normal. It's not okay to have presidents call people names that's not okay. You disagree with him. You don't like what he said. Okay. Say it respectfully. And I think that's the biggest issue. Um, the lack of respect and the lack of niceties just all gone out the window. And from there, other bigger things, terrible bigger things have been able to stem. But I think it starts from those things, from our words. Words matter. 
Right. Words matter, especially when you're the president of the United States. So, right, you, you know, you're such an important part of, of the coronavirus task force. And now suddenly, um, you know, Trump is going around saying, you know, I never met her. <laughs> Who is this Olivia Troy? What does that feel like, you know, to you to have him obliterate you so totally publicly? You know, it's to be expected. I, you know, whenever you speak out, it's the go-to line. They're a disgruntled employee. I've never met them. There are pictures of me sitting right behind him, right? I mean, right. but, <laughs> right. and, and, you know, I wasn't best friends with him, certainly, and I was closer to the vice president and was in more meetings with him because that's the staff that I served on. But, uh, but you know, it's just, it just goes along with, with the president and who he is. And, you know, watching General Kellogg, to be honest, lying on national TV saying that he fired me and escorted me out, I think, you know, I know where his loyalties lie and his priority as a president. And some of these people will do everything. They will give into everything. They will, you know, compromise their own ethics and morals and beliefs for the sake of the president unwaveringly. And was it hurtful? Yes, I was. <laughs> I had conversations with General Kellogg about my future and what I was going to do next. And he certainly, um, I resigned and he knew why I was resigning and we had heart to hearts. And so it was upsetting to hear, you know, that he thought my performance was declining and he personally escorted me out. You know, mm -hmm. I think on one blister once I said, I'd love to see the footage because mm -hmm. I'm really close to all of those secret service guys, right? I think the world of them and I think, you know, I think I would have remembered that. <laughs> it would have been very <laughs> right. humiliating after. It's not, it's not an un unmemorable moment for you. <laughs> right. <laughs> There are also lots of cameras in the White House, so <laughs> I'm sure that's a moment that was captured. Yes. And in this White House, I guarantee you, if they had a footage like that, they would have put it out. Yes, that's who they are. Well, you're <laughs> so, in very good company because they're talking about, you know, Anthony Fauci that way now. So I think you're okay. You know, it's always they escorted him out, but just that I think I heard the term idiot, and I don't. I don't see, that's what I say about words matter. I don't see how you could, as the president, use that word about anyone and certainly not about Dr. Anthony Fauci, so. Right, and the best part of that is that they, that he says that not even probably a week after he cuts an ad trying to, taking his words out of context, saying that Dr. Fauci was praising him and how wonderful it is, right? So, I mean, which one is it? Is he an idiot who supported you then? Is that what it is? I mean, I can't keep up. It is definitely um, difficult to understand, to say the least. So I want to talk a little about something totally different about you, Olivia. I know that you um, had a music blog. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're, you're more than just the White House, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm a music lover. I love music. I used to go to a lot of live shows and, and seek out, you know, indie artists or up-and-coming artists. And I also went to a lot of big shows. I mean, Aerosmith is my, my favorite band. Um, actually, my, one of my closest friends got me into them, and she's actually a New Yorker. She's a Manhattan girl, and she, lives, she still lives there. And we've been to many Aerosmith concerts together, but I did. I ran a music blog. I, I, nice. I sort of stopped writing uh, when, I, when things got pretty, <laughs> pretty intense during my role in, at DHS. I didn't have a lot of time to write, but, um, and I actually, well, it was called Back to More Cowbell. Oh, I love that. So you should start this again. <laughs> It's, it's, it's probably, it was probably such a great outlet for you. It was. I, I, you know, I'm a big supporter of the arts and I think that music 
is sort of the universal language, right? Yeah. I think that, and, and I will say, you know, I drive into the White House sometimes. I had songs that I would put on that would motivate me for the day. Or at the end of the day, I would have certain songs that I would play on my way home. And it was all depending on what I was facing the day and feeling. And so that music has always been a really big part of my life. And, and so I ran this music block. I actually took it down right before I knew that I was going public and the video was going to drop because I was afraid that, that people would use that as a platform to just wow. write all sorts of nasty things on it and everything. And I didn't, I had worked so hard on it that I was like, I'm not gonna, I can't leave this up and have that people just give, you know, the people who are <laughs> hateful another platform to destroy me on. Right. No, yeah. well, I vote for you to get it back on and figure out a way to, you know, block all those people. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So Olivia, what's next for you? Do you, do you have a sense of like where you want to, where you want to head or just need some time or, you know, I'm just, uh, I don't have a long-term plan. I'm taking it one day at a time. I'm looking obviously at the election and tracking what will happen in the aftermath of that. And I think a lot will sort of depends on, on that. I, I don't know. It's just one day at a time and just trying to stay strong and uh, counter whatever narratives come out of the white house on, on topics that I feel are really important because there, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And if there's something I can speak to, I, I speak about it. And I, you know, I can only speak to my truth and what I saw, right? And I stick to that. And if I have had reporters ask me questions and if I don't know, I say, I don't know. Right, that's nice. And I think you make no secret about supporting Joe Biden, right? Right, I have, uh, you know, I have been a lifelong Republican, but I feel that Although I may disagree with some of the policies that may come in his tenure if he gets elected, I do believe that he will will take the integrity and the decorum of the Oval Office um, to heart, and he will be presidential, and he will be a leader yes. for all of us, yes. not just the Democrats, right? And I feel very strongly about that. And I think that we need that. And I think that he will know that he's, he would be coming in at a very critical and important moment in our country's history. And I think that I do have faith that he is the person who will take a step back and at least start the healing process of bringing us together. And he will take the pandemic seriously and he will understand what's at stake here. And, and I think you know, I think that's what we need right now, because I, I do think that four more years of President Trump is is dangerous for many reasons. It, it, and we won't be the same. We won't be the same country after right. four more years of this. We're already not the same country. Yes. I, I think people four years ago um, who were on the fence about voting for Trump and then did may have thought, oh, what could really happen in four years? You know, it's not such a long time. We can't really undo everything. But I think, as you just said, a lot has changed. And um we really have to be careful. And I, certainly Joe Biden will restore dignity amongst all the other things you said, but I think dignity um, will be a great start for, for this country. So that would be um, important. And listen, I think what you're doing, I cannot say this enough, just is so important, not only to get the word out about this current administration right now before election, which is of utmost important, importance, but really just generally for people 
in your situation in different areas of their lives at different time periods to remember that you don't need to suffer silently, right? Like you can be empowered to take a stand and that is often hard to do, but I think once you do it, you always feel better for it. Right. I think, you know, doing the right thing is sometimes the hardest thing. And certainly this, this was the hardest thing I have ever done in my entire life. And, but it was also, I, in my heart and and all my being believe that it was the right thing to do. And I feel so much better having done it, even though, you know, like I said, I, I still carry guilt and I will carry that for a very long time. But at the moment that it mattered, I think everyone faces that moment at some point in their life. And for me, it was now. And I had to do it. And, and we thank you, really. There's a lot of people out there who thank you for taking a stand. And I'm one of them. So um, thanks for coming on. It was fantastic speaking with you. Um, and I hope somehow the dust settles and you find your way back into a great um, career trajectory because I think you are doing a great job and you will certainly do a great job in another great position with, with a great administration. So I, I hope it works out for you. I think it will. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the kind words. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Bye for now. Thank you.